Hey guys, welcome back to Wondering Faith, a show where we discuss all the things that faith makes us wonder. Today, Paul and I sat down with our friend Jamie, and we were wondering, is Jesus nicer than his dad? Hope you enjoy. Wonder does abound, even amidst the confusion and troubles in this fragile but precious world. Alright guys, so what do we think? Is Jesus nicer than his dad? Uh, never met the guy. <laughs> Can't say. I know Jesus pretty well. But... Alright, well before we kind of unpack this question a little bit, we have obviously uh, a, a guest and a friend, uh, Jamie Holt. You want to introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about where you're from, and uh, obviously, for those that don't know, Jamie is one of my closest friends for the longest time uh, in in my wedding. And if uh, if I had known him before, I would have been in his his wedding, I assume. <laughs> so then you're saying... You would have, you would have done my wedding. On our bromance. <laughs> our bromance. It would be with Jamie. Yes, yes. Jamie, you have the floor. <laughs> yeah. My, um, my, my secret ambition in life is to uh, work in the same geographical like time zone as Ben Shrank. Um, that's my goal. Yeah. Um, I'm currently in the Chicagoland area, St. Charles, Illinois. Um, a beautiful little place, Tri-City area on a currently frozen river, which I didn't know was going to be as majestic as it is, but frozen rivers are cool. All the birds just kind of chill on top of them and, and wander around. Um, I'm at a congregation called St. Mark's there. Um, churches in the Midwest can be super duper old compared to where I just came from. Um, I was in Phoenix and I was, thought I was in an old church because it was founded in the 50s. I was like, oh, that's cool. Um, this one was like the 1850s, uh, which is nuts. <laughs> nuts. So it's, yeah. Um, so enjoying life here. Me and my wife, Erin, moved here with our two little kids. I got a three-year-old son and a four-year-old daughter. And they're loving uh, going to school and playing in the snow. And um, every time I make a snowman, my daughter, um, you remember uh, Bill Goldberg doing the spear move in WWE? She just takes a running, takes a running start, <laughs> and just takes out the middle section of the snowman and the head drops onto the bottom part. Um, so we're, we're getting, getting used to the, to the Midwestern lifestyle again. It's kind of nice. That's awesome. Well, so we asked you to be on and also asked you to, because we obviously love having conversations with you at different times and asked you if there was a topic that you wanted to talk about. And you picked a really easy one for us today. No, but I'm obviously excited. So the, the conversation is the question is, is Jesus nicer than his dad? And that, basically how do we approach um, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament, the re- hidden God, the revealed God, kind of all the things that, I mean, I think a lot of people, when they see, uh, talk about God and God's love, but then they see how he acts in the Old Testament, the kind of the vengeance, the uh, the war, I mean, the absolute just desolation of, of, of entire communities, trying to hold that together is pretty tough. I and mean, we actually just listened to a, another podcast of, of kind of people that have deconstructed from their faith. And this is one of the big issues is how can you reconcile a God that 
demands for the complete devastation and desolation of an entire community, but yet is also at the same time uh, loving. Again, if God does not change, how, how does that work? And how can we kind of hold these things in tension? Um, and is this a different God? Are we talking about completely different things? Or how do we talk about uh, Christ as being, okay, the one that comes alongside of lepers and widows and um but yet this god of the old testament seems man he's 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 angry <laughs> he seems ferocious right and 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 is there is there a difference or are we just kind of highlighting maybe things that maybe stick out to us most and so um yeah you picked an easy one for us today jamie <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's a sense in which the answer to the question is easy because jesus answers the question um, he just tells us the answer to it, but like what we do with that is what's so hard. And I think you just kind of really simply articulated all of the problems that we have with the answer. Cause Jesus says, I and the father are one. If you've right. seen me, you've seen the father. I mean, Jesus says he and I are identical, right? I mean, that's a, yeah. I am, I'm the image of the invisible God. Like that representation. You want to know what he's like. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So Jesus tells us like, no, God has to be at least as nice as Jesus. He has to be. Um, Well, then now what? (laughs) Because now we have this written record um, of, of acts ascribed to Jesus's dad that, um, the more you dig into scripture, the more you realize, wait, no, actually that was Jesus. A lot of those times um, doing these things that we think Jesus would never do. Um, And what do we do with that? How do we, how do we wrestle with this? Um, So yeah, it's, it's not simple, but it is. And I think, uh, yeah, I I can't wait to talk about it. I've been, I, this is one of my favorite things to think about, to wonder about. Um, So I don't bring too many answers, but I'm, I may, I may have stumbled upon certain ways of saying things that you might find helpful, that people might find um, life-giving <laughs> as opposed yeah. to consternating. So nice. Yeah. So Paul, what, I mean, what do, you, what do you think in regards to this conversation? Is this something that you see in, uh, in terms of people's maybe hangups over uh, belief in God or, or like we said, kind of the deconstruction away from faith is kind of trying to reconcile all these things, or maybe even you personally, how, how has, how have you walked through this of trying to understand, okay, well, how can we understand who God is when he seems to act in different ways and yet he's yet he's unchanging. So how, how can we kind of reconcile all these things? Yeah. Um, I have seen this be a big hang up uh, for a lot of people. And, you know, I heard uh, Tim Keller give a talk at, he was invited to speak at some DC thing. And like the big question he was asked to respond to was what, good can Christianity provide for the modern world or something? And he did a great job of responding to it. But one of the big things he kind of wrapped up with was if you're going to judge Christianity, judge it by its own standards and maybe not the standards that you would bring to it or something. So I'm like, okay, that's yeah, interesting. And sort of a thing in philosophy is you can, I guess, evaluate the merits of any philosophy. And now we're getting big lingo, but you have to determine whether it's self-referentially defeating like, does it not even stand up according to its own rules? And that's like with logical positivism and everything. Um, if, if you know about that, I don't know. But that was like a big thing in like 19th, 20th century where logical positivism, like that philosophy didn't hold up with its own rules. And so it's like, okay, that defeated itself by reference to itself. Uh, so I'm getting at all this because 
we were listening, like you said, we listened to that podcast about is God really loving? And does God, like, I think the a really interesting question is, does God meet his own standard for love and his own definition for love? And in the podcast, they unpacked 1 Corinthians 13, where it describes love as being uh, not easily angered and not keeping a record of wrongs. But then you talk about God, and even in the Old Testament, God is slow to anger, abounding steadfast love. Does God actually meet his own definition? Because it's one thing to impose your own idea of who you think God should be. Well, God's word tells you what love should look like, and God's word tells you that God is love. But then the things that are described about God don't seem to really match up. Like, does he does he fall short on his own on his own uh, ground? Like, is he self referentially like defeated? And out of all this stuff, as far as like if you approach this philosophically, because you can approach it like personally if you're dealing with suffering, but then you can approach it from kind of in the armchair, figuring out okay, is this God that's described in the Bible? Does it actually even hold up or is it not even, is it just a really conflicted account? And I think, does God meet his own standard of love and what loving looks like? Um, because, and like you said, Jesus and God are one. But yet, of course, you know that they're distinct. And like, what do we make of the fact that Jesus satisfied God's wrath? Like there is wrath there. And does, does love have room for wrath? And, you know, there's so many questions wrapped up in it. But I think for me, for people that are really, wanting to take this question seriously, that place of starting, okay, does God meet his own standard of love? That is, I think, a really interesting place to start. And I think in the podcast, they'd say no, but I think we could say yes, even with, um, even with all the skeletons in God's closet, I guess. So that's my initial response. That's good. Yeah. I'm, I'm fascinated with how you get to yes, because, um, you have to do something to get there. And I'm just, what's been, um, what's been tickling my desire to someday maybe get a terminal degree is um, the, everybody has to do something. And I'm just fascinated with what you did, right? How do you get to yes, given everything you just said, because um, what you think is standing in the way is usually the thing that you try to dismantle, right? Um, so yeah, I <laughs> when you um, when you consider like how maybe the problem of evil usually gets tackled, right? You've got these three things that can't all be true. So which one ends up not being true? Right. Yeah. God can do whatever he wants. God is always good. Evil Bad exists. Thing. Right. Right. So. Um, you know, when you choose from a menu like that, you end up uh, accidentally, but necessarily putting yourself into some sort of category of thinker or Christian, right? Um, something that is stereotypically Calvinist to do is to just say, there's not really any such thing as evil. Um, evil's not really real. If it seems bad, it's just a perspective issue, but someday you'll recognize since God does everything <laughs> basically and bad things seem to happen. Really the problem is just my definition of what's bad, but like someday if he gives me the the wisdom to see it, I'll see things from his perspective and realize that it wasn't bad. Um, and so God is sovereign and good. Um, I hate that. <laughs> like <laughs> I, I hate it. <laughs> I hate it from a, from a very, like you said, cause you can, um, 
you can abstract your way out of this problem, but that means leaving behind the very real world of like having bad things happen. Um, as a, I don't, I don't want to go too far afield, but as a, as a privileged white guy in America, I can tend to agree that I probably overestimate the role of evil in my life. <laughs> and like, I would probably overinflate inconveniences or, you know, minor catastrophes into something like the, you know, evil. Um, so I get where a Calvinist approach comes from, but like people have experiences that are objectively worse than mine. And it would be absurd for me to say that theirs also don't count. Um, because like, I don't know. Um, there is just some stuff that probably shouldn't happen. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so I, I, that's just an example of like something you have to do to get around this. I, I doubt that that's what you do. I doubt that you're like, yeah, there's really no issue. Like everything God, everything it says God does in the Bible is actually a really cool thing to do. I'm glad God did it. Thank God for all of those things that he did. Right. That's probably not the thing we do. So like, what do you do? How do you still get to yes? Well, I think personally, as far as like with first Corinthians 13 and all the descriptions about what love is like in the, in that podcast, when they talked about it, they said, yes, God does get angry, but really first Corinthians 13 even says slow to anger. And I'd say, well, I That's probably fair. don't know how to the patience uh, or what is fast or what is slow with, with anger. Cause it doesn't say it's totally excluded necessarily. And I think I'm very comfortable with, for one, erring on the side of, or having the faith to say that I don't see the full picture. And so when there's unknown, I'm just, I'm willing to go to that side of things as opposed to, no, it should be absolutely clear to me. I'm willing to say, no, it probably is not. And I probably won't ever be able to grasp it all. So I kind of have that, that predisposition going into it that I assume I probably won't fully get it. And that helps me along towards yes, I'd say. And then the fact that I think wrath and love can live together is another thing that I would be comfortable taking. And, uh, and then ultimately I think uh, just a disposition of <laughs> God can, yes, I don't think, I don't think God breaks his own rules, but ultimately I'm way more comfortable with saying that God has figured out a way to let all of this live together that I just, right. In essence, what you're saying is God's powerful. God is good, but he defines good. Right. And so he does, he does not live in our definition of what is good. And so then the fact that evil exists somehow fits within the definition of God's goodness, that goodness doesn't mean a lack of badness, right? That goodness is holding the tension within that, holding the truth within that. And God, and so, so yeah, typically how I, how I respond to that question is that is we, when we try to define God on the basis of our terms of good or loving, even well, do God's terms. Do God's do first, terms? Do First Corinthians thirteen. That's yeah. what I'm saying. Yeah, well, I'm not even saying we're defining yeah, yeah. our terms. I'm saying I'm jumping right to okay, God's terms. Great. Now here are God's terms. Right. Now how does God live up to them? Yeah, because God is love. So patience, kindness, goodness. Yeah, I mean, you know, no record of wrongs, envy, does not boast, all those things. And I, we, I mean, if we, could, I guess, if we want to go through that list and see if he, if he follows up, or, if you I mean, think it'd be. It'd be, but... it'd be fruitful. It'd be fruitful because within two or three, we'd have, you know, some fodder to 
play around with. Because I, Ben, I just want to follow up and make sure I understand you correctly. When you say that the definition of good can include bad, you're not saying that that God is also some of the things that we think are bad. You're saying that God can have room in a world that he made. Yes. For some bad. Okay, good. Right. That's what well, I, and I, I 100%. No, not, not that God has, yeah, no, no, you know, yes, no, yeah, not God has. Yeah. Right now, right? <laughs> no, but I mean, <laughs> I like so, so, so th- this is the thing is that we, the things that we ascribe as being bad, God necessarily says, Hey, wait a second. I'm, I'm, I define what is good. Right. I mean, for example, like, so as a youth pastor, uh, one of the questions, one of my favorite uh, Bible stories, honestly, in youth, and it's funny that always gets brought up and always is like, how the heck is this in the Bible is when, you know, the 42 youth get mauled by two she bears because they make fun of him who is a bald prophet, right? I mean, like, it, it's, it's one of, it's, it's kind of one of my favorite uh, not because I mean I love youth and it, but it is funny. You know, and we should recognize was that that's a pretty decent sized youth group. Yeah, forty two. Forty two is not good bad. That's good. 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 Yeah, they were following him just to you just ever to read, get mauled uh, by Stephen D. Young's um, explanation of that. Stephen no, D. Young so. is an or, he's an Orthodox priest, um, and he wrote a book. God is a man of war. Uh, are you familiar with this at all? Mm, nope. Um, so he treats that book or he treats that story in a way that I'd never heard anybody explain before. Um, and so feel free to Google this later and dig into the details and kind of figure out whether or not he knows what he's talking about. But I mean, he seemed to prove the case to me. Um, apparently, uh, those youths were not little kids. Um, which is already just fascinating because it's like, OK, yeah, that's probably true because why is there a gaggle of, uh, you know, a couple of the flies out there, little children <laughs> by themselves, right? Why are they making fun of him? Blah, 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 blah. Um, apparently they would have been um, something akin to uh, like court officials in the adversarial government. And they were, um, literally threatening him like actually threatening him and so god protected his prophet from what would have amounted to him getting jumped by a bunch of adversarial young men who were officials in an opposing uh regime which only takes a little bit of like looking up to see if that's accurate right Right. Which is hilarious to me, because if he's right, what we have done my whole life is not bother to check. (laughs) Like, just run with the most absurd version of what possibly happened, which is God sent bears to kill little children for teasing someone about his haircut was more believable to us than any other option worth looking up. And the answer is just so much more like satisfying. You're like, oh yeah. Well then why did I ever think that it was what I thought? English is why I thought that, just English. Um, And just a, a particular position in time with respect to the language that I speak. English 
since 1983 is why I think that. Whereas maybe 500 years ago, English would have made it sound exactly the way it did in uh, Aramaic or Hebrew, right? Um, so I, I say that one, to encourage you to read God as a Man of War. Uh, I don't agree with everything DeYoung says, but I like the way he approaches some of these, because he's getting after a lot of these issues. Um, but two, just to problematize what what we do, our, I mean, what we do is we take English stories at face value. We set them against an idea that every single thing that happens in the Bible was God's fault. And we just assume that there's something that could possibly justify the murder of children. When we know that God, time and again, if he's going to kill someone, if he's going to kill someone, it's because they won't stop murdering children. That just is who he is in the Old Testament. The times he condones like the death penalty, often enough, it's weird sex or it's child sacrifice. Those are the things that if you don't stop doing it, it's okay to kill you. But we're like, but God will kill kids for X or Y reason. And we're just like, yeah, that's probably true. It's, it's weird, <laughs> but it's probably true. Um, it, it yeah. blows my I've, heard, I've heard a different uh, account of that too but one that also wasn't like problematic right that they were fully aware of who Elisha was it had nothing to do with the fact that he was bald it had everything to do with his role and his position to be the mouthpiece yes. of God and yep. I, blaspheming God's word right will always result in death whether that's by bears or by a whole long life of just not living according to it so yeah i'm i'll 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 definitely read that book but i I guess it's okay so we we probably need to get to a place where we say how do we approach this and then let's 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 go through it in terms of is jesus uh different than god like because i the one of the ways that uh and does jesus function differently than god does in terms of his love in terms of his kindness is it different or is it the same or is it a fullest expression of God's love, which holds both within it uh, anger and flipping tables and saying, hey, this is just or this is unjust and, and kindness mm-hmm. and, and, and mercy yeah. and, and that yeah. these things are a, a part of God. Because, I mean, I, I, obviously, I think most people believe Old Testament is, you know, outdated, doesn't doesn't impact us. It's it's a antiquated version of who God is. And the New Testament is really the updated version. But if we take that view, ultimately, that's it, it's going to undercut it's going to undercut nearly all of the Old Testament, nearly or nearly all of the New Testament. The New Testament talks about the Old Testament. And it actually, yeah. I would argue, yeah. um, God is more cruel in the New Testament in the sense of more wrathful, right? The cross is the most wrathful thing in the Bible, right? So all of the, all the murder, all the, all the pure, all the things that are in the old Testament, people have a problem with if, if they're like, I'm just going to get rid of that. But then they like, but I'm going to hold on to the cross. Wait a second. I'm going to hold on to the cross. The the one innocent guy in the whole story gets killed. Like, no, like, like, so we have to be able to kind of have these things and hold these things and understand uh, yeah. So is the God of the old Testament somehow different than the God of the new? Well, no, I mean, ultimately the God of the new Testament, Jesus is the fullest expression. As we said at the beginning, the fullest expression of who God is that God says, I can choose any way to be known, but I want you to see me and know me through this way, through sacrifice, self-sacrifice through, um, through, uh, (laughs) my power is actually on display when I'm weakest. Right. Um, and, 
and this is how this is how the world needs to know who I am. That, I mean, that, that to me alone is a fascinating uh, thought. But yeah, the Old Testament is not law. New Testament is not gospel. There's Old Testament gospel. There's there's New Testament law. Like I mean, there are things that God calls us to, but ultimately God's the one that uh, that shapes us. So how how can we, I guess, unpack uh, in terms of people's perception of Jesus? I guess that's the thing. People's perception of Jesus, they're, they're real confident and comfortable with who Jesus is because he's the nice guy. He's the guy that likes lepers. He's the guy that likes widows. He's the guy that hangs out with prostitutes. He's self-righteous, he's self-righteous people, right? I mean, like we, man, we can get behind that Jesus. Um, and then God somehow is the guy that doesn't like, in terms of the Old Testament, that doesn't like outsiders, which, wait a second, is that actually true? Is that categorically right. true in the Old Testament? No, there are times where outsiders that he was protecting his people, but what was his rules about outsiders? What were his rules about outsiders? Welcome, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, and hospitality was the, one of the most important things. Uh, and, the, and the people of God brought other people from other nations as a part of li- quite literally the lineage of Jesus. And, and so I think it's just a vast oversimplification of this is bad. And it, again, we're comparing God on the basis of what we believe is good. Right. We're 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 we, we are not comparing God against the basis of what God says about what is what is good and what is love. I mean, he's comparing God on the basis of himself. So let's do that. I like that. Let's okay. go through that. Let's let's pull up John or John. First uh, Corinthians uh, 13. So uh, what is love? Well, God is love. So love is patient. Is God patient? I'd say. <laughs> I'd say yeah. yeah. Right. I mean, more patient than me. More patient. Yeah. yeah. And even with the, even with the Egyptians, he waited. 420 years, 420 years until he rescued his people from slavery. From, I mean, that's a long, that's a lot of patience. Like I, I don't have nearly not even a smidgen of that much patience. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. patient. Is there, is and, there, what, what, I, mean, I mean, take, take the Egypt story, right? Because I love this. Every step of the way, there was a chance for no one to die. There was the invitation and the opportunity for no one to die every step of the way. Because if what about the part single uh, hardening of the heart? What about the hardening of the heart? Yeah, what about that part? Because that is always, I mean, and I had I think I have my own way to kind of be able to unpack that, at least in my mind. But in I don't know if it's if it's you know exegetical gymnastics or just my theological gymnastics, but I have a way that we all do it, man. (laughs) No, we are Lutherans and we do it right we have the right interpretation all the time uh <laughs> no but i mean how do yeah. we how do we reconcile that that i have mercy on who i have mercy i have compassion on who i have compassion i i harden hearts um is that fair so, I mean, well our just our conversation of fairness is another thing is god fair uh, does he have to be right uh, i mean jesus getting it raw and this yeah. not super not fair showing partiality yeah yeah but anyways so patience and yeah the hardening of heart yeah jb were you gonna respond to that um my take on it the way the way i explain it to high school kids that have an issue with it is i make sure to tell the story in order and say that god doesn't harden pharaoh's heart before moses gets there he doesn't harden pharaoh's heart before moses has a conversation with pharaoh he doesn't harden pharaoh's heart before pharaoh hardens his own heart grammatically um, right. which is important to know. And he doesn't harden Pharaoh's heart until Pharaoh changing his mind at the very last minute would give glory to Pharaoh and not to Yahweh. 
Hmm. That, I mean, that's when it happens. Oh, that's right? interesting. Wait, say that again. I, yeah. I've never. Yeah. yeah, that's interesting. I that's it. Ooh, I think yeah, that's so who the gets, key. Okay, you can say you can say it again, but I've never heard that before. I like yeah. that. I think that's the key because one of the things that we have to remember with the Exodus story is that the point of the story is not in Egypt. The point of the story is in Canaan, where the Israelites are going. By the time the Israelites get to Canaan, they and their God are already famous for what happened in Egypt. Well, that was and Rahab. And she, she's them. the one that knows about all this and says and kind of confesses the the fact of uh, of what God has done and that she's fearful, right? And I mean, reverently fearful of, of, of Yahweh God. But now, yeah, so there's a you, couple cool reasons. Oh, go ahead. Do you want to add something? You keep going. You, you got train. There's a couple cool reasons why the Canaanites would have been interested in what Yahweh was doing to the Egyptians. Chief among them is the Canaanite deity had ended up in the Egyptian pantheon. And the God that Yahweh was judging with the Passover was actually Baal from Canaan. And all of the, all of the imagery and symbolism going on with the Passover was about Yahweh taking back for himself these, um, uh, these qualities that were attributed to Baal at the time, which is why the Israelites had to camp uh, and sleep facing um, Mount Zephon, which is Baal's holy mountain, why um, Baal, who was the god over the chaos of the sea, was judged when Moses parted the Red Sea and they walked across on dry land. Uh, one of the interesting things to think about, I mean, basically, Baal ended up being identified with Set by the time um, the, the, a group of Semitic peoples called the Hyksos came down into Egypt. Then Joseph and his brothers, they all ended up there. Uh, you know what I mean? The, the Jews ended up in Egypt. But the, a god from their place ended up there. Um, when Pharaoh and the Egyptian army approach the, the water and the sea parts, they think Baal's doing it. They don't recognize that Yahweh is doing it, which is why they follow them into the water. They think that Baal has laid a trap against the Israelites, right? So long story short, the, the glory of what happened in the Exodus, if Pharaoh was allowed to change his mind at the last minute, which he kind of does, after he hardens his heart, he lets them go, right? And then he changes his mind again. And But um, hardening your heart isn't as permanent as we might think. And so that's important to keep in mind. But um, he lets them go. If, they, if the Israelites arrive in Canaan, because Pharaoh was nice to them, then this is just a group of slaves that one master has let go and now they need another, right? They need someone else to control them and that would have been their fate in Canaan. But if the Israelites are under the banner of the strongest God that anybody knows about because he took on Baal and won, then Pharaoh doesn't get any of the glory. God gets the glory. And by connection, Moses does. This is about reputation in Exodus. What's interesting about this is um, when Jesus brings up this idea of hardening people's hearts in the New Testament, 
when he says the reason that I'm do- doing these things the way that I'm doing it is so that you can't change your mind. You have to kill me. Do you remember these conversations leading up to the cross where he quotes Isaiah about, um, I don't want you to see, I don't want you to hear, I don't want you to understand. He's ma- And he does everything he does and they have to kill him because if he li- if they just beat him and then let him go and he doesn't die, there's no, God gets no glory for that. Like nothing happened, right? He has to die. So um, the reason I'm bringing this up is this hardening of hearts thing where, cause I'm, I'm the kind of person that I, I balk at the idea of God coercing in any way. I feel like the, the prime posture of God to the world is invitational, not, um, coercive. God doesn't force himself on people. He invites you into a relationship with him right. and you can say yes or no. Um, but there are times where it seems like God makes sure that something happens in a certain way, but it's super rare to the point where the biblical authors point it out on purpose. Those times are about making sure that people understand who's actually God. I don't know if that makes sense or not, or if I just talked way too much, but yeah, no, it it's does. about the, the reputation identity, identity of God in those specific moments. Yeah. So <laughs> I know with this idea of uh, the glory the reputation, uh, cause that's kind of where you land with some of this. And I mean, I think a lot of the ways that you explain that and kind of present that, how we can think about it is really good. And, and this idea of, glory and this is something that was brought up in that that podcast but like first corinthians 13 5 says love does not dishonor others it is not self-seeking okay so the self-seeking idea then they take that as okay love does not seek itself in any way but yet it seems like throughout the bible that god is wanting and seeking people to glorify and worship him and yep. if we understand I mean, what his glory is, this, wait, say that one more time. As long as we understand what his glory is, okay, what's so the thing that, about yeah. him? Yeah. So the, the, a basic biblical definition of glory is the thing that you can do that no one else can do. It's your thing, right? So <clears throat> Jesus, by his first miracle at Cana, revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. They understood when he turned water into wine that he was a deity because of its analogous um, relationship to a wine ceremony that Dionysus did every year. So they knew that he was divine because of what he did with the wine. And they knew that he was the Christ Messiah Psalm 2 guy because an abundance of really good wine was how everybody who had read Isaiah and other prophets knew that the Messianic age had begun. So they knew that he was divine and they knew that he was the anointed Christ, the king, the Psalm two king of the world because of that miracle, right? They knew his glory. They knew who he was and what he was here to do. So glory just means the thing that you can do that no one else can do. The glory of God, when you take the meta narrative of scripture and then drill down like a fractal on any particular story, the glory of God is he can take away sins and their consequence, not cover them over, but remove them from you, right? 
he can take away sin. He can uh, bring life where death was. So like Ezekiel 37, right? Dry bones can come to life. Like God makes life and God removes sin. Basically, he can save humanity and restore us to our proper relationship to himself. Give us back our Adamness, garden Adamness. No one else can do that. A- Adam can't do that. Satan can't do that. Uh, Moloch can't do that. Money can't do that. Ha- you know, nothing can do that except for Yahweh. Only Yahweh can bring Adam back to his right hand, make him his son again. Only, only Yahweh can do that. That's his glory. So that being the thing that God is most interested in protecting and promoting is not self-seeking because God does not need that. He wants it. He desperately desires it, but for our sake, not his, you know what I I mean? I think, yeah, that's the not selfish. That's the main thing is that like, so God's character is always pointing, right? So, you, so even within the Trinity, they, you know, the father sends the son, sends the spirit, the spirit, you know, points to the father, to the son, the, the, uh, uh, it's kind of all just pointing at each other. Right. And then, uh, yeah. outward to towards the world. And so what God says, yeah, God's inward in an, an ever increasing inside, right? If you take the perichoresis, this expanding embrace of all of God and everything inside is what he's making. And that just keeps getting bigger and bigger as God reaches, you know, um, holding on, but reaches uh, further and further. What he's made inside just keeps getting bigger. Right. Yeah. And so like demanding worship is not, I mean, like, like you said, it's not a prerequisite for him to be God. It's actually something that, that we need, right? We need to be able to take the, uh, we need to emulate God's, arrow outward life right pointing to somebody else that if if i have to if i'm pointing to myself i can't carry the weight of the world on my own shoulders but god can so god says for your sake you like you need to worship me not because i need worship but because you need you need for the weight of the world to not be pointed to yourself you need it on somebody else you need a firm foundation and you need you need to lift your eyes up right you need to not uh worship is placing things in the proper kind of the proper ordering of things, right? It's, it's a, it's a, it's right. taking our will, taking our lives and placing it to the only one that actually can hold, hold it all. So, yeah, I would, I would say that, I mean, I, I think I, I get it where people are like, you know, God is, he's a jealous God, right? He's, he wants our worship, but it's not a self did. It's not, it's not a selfish reason right it's not because he it doesn't needs do more. anything for him or to him yeah is that it? no it's yeah. it's because he knows that we can't live and function well without it because yeah. we need to not well, live with us being so one God. more one more point with this and then you guys can take whatever uh kind of the next thing to address but i'm gonna i'm gonna set that kind of ex- explanation next to uh an abuser telling the person that they're sort of abusing like ultimately you need me you can't live without me so gaslighting god's gaslighting god's gaslighting you need me and i can do things you can't do and so i'm gonna set the rules and you know do whatever i do because without me you wouldn't have a leg to stand on i'm gonna i'm gonna deal with all the things that you can't but i'm also gonna kind of keep you under my thumb so it's because i hear some people say that as far as this is kind of what it sounds like that god's 
uh, forcing us into this sort of weird abusive relationship where he could have, if he was all powerful, could have just set us to where we weren't. So uh, indeed, and like, it's almost, uh, so people set those two next to each other. So can you, can you disentangle or can you distinct distinguish the one from the other? Like, do you think that that comparison even holds any, any water or. I mean, I, I guess how I would even approach that just a little bit would be the whole concept of covenant is, uh, is not contingent on our actions ever it's it's always been god is the one that's like yes he wants to keep us in this relationship for our sake not not keep us under his thumb but keep us in the palm of his hand right which it was a it's a completely different it, it might feel that way depending on your view of god and that's when, when i listen to people that have deconstructed from faith or are struggling with faith i just feel like they completely miss the gospel they completely miss they, they have this idea of god as being waiting for you to just royally screw up and uh, keeping a record of wrongs and saying, okay, when, when all said and done, uh, I, you're terrible. And, and, but, but I, you need me because I got you. And it's, it's not that God, God, not, it's not just like some future life that God has for us or something. It's, it's actually now God wants you to receive freedom now, not under his thumb, but in the, in the palm of his hand. So I, I, yeah, I mean, I think, I think if someone's been in an abusive relationship though, uh, it is probably hard to um, disentangle their own personal experience of, of human manipulation uh, where somebody said, yeah, this is, you need me. You can't live without me. And they've been stuck in that. And where, when God says, Hey, you need me, you can't live without me. And when we, when we superimpose our own sinful, imperfect relationships upon God, then we attribute those things of those imperfect relationships to God. But I don't think that in, in terms of what God it's is, unfair to God. it's completely unfair to God, but it, I mean, it, and again, he gets it. I mean, he's not like, he's not like, how dare you? He's like, Hey, you've been through something. Right. And I get that. And I, I, there, I mean, God is gracious and, and, and he's compassionate and he, actually he's near and close to the broken heart of those people that have gone through those types of things. And I, um, yeah, I, I think that there's, there, there's a God of, of grace in the middle of, uh, especially in the middle of that type of brokenness. I don't know, Jamie, what, how would you respond to that? Because that's, that is an interesting, I guess, I'm, I don't know if I've ever really thought about it in that, in those terms. It's a really helpful um, wrench to try to throw into this because it's so like, it tickles that part of our brain. Um, but I, I, I have two things. One is what's, if we, if we say that God is in this role of, hey, listen, you got to come to me um, to know who you are and what you're for, right? I, I give you identity. I give you purpose. I give you meaning, right? Um, first of all, like, we'll talk about this in a second, but that's absolutely true. And I think it matters if it's actually true, right? When someone else does it, it might not be true. Um, mm-hmm. If it is true, then that matters, right? But, but the second yeah. thing is, what's your alternative? Because if, if, if the option in this situation, like when it's an abusive um, spouse, the alternative is like a different spouse or go, do, you know, work on yourself, you know, go, uh, you know, take the study abroad. Yeah. yeah, whatever. Right. You have options with regards to this, though, like this relationship with the one that made us. We don't have another option except ourselves, which kind of is the whole Genesis three thing. 
me deciding because Satan whispered it into my ear or whatever, that what God really wanted all along was for me to determine my own purpose and identity, that that was the point of humanity, that that's actually me leveling up a bit is me no longer needing him to tell me who I am and what I'm for, but me discovering it, determining it on my own. Um, That is the fall. Like that is the problem. So if we go back to where it actually comes from and say, it kind of makes sense that the one that made me would be the one to teach me who I am and what I'm for. That kind of actually makes sense. And identity and purpose is different than role and rank and responsibility. And that's important to know because when we talk about covenantal faithfulness, the Sinai covenant did have some conditions, but it wasn't a covenant that bestowed on someone identity and purpose. It was a covenant that bestowed upon someone a role, a rank and a responsibility, which you could forfeit if you stopped keeping your end of the covenant. And Israel did you know, from time to time, they would completely stop being Israel because what they were supposed to be was a light to the world, a city on a hill, a nation, a kingdom of priests that would welcome people into a proper relationship with Yahweh. They were supposed to be blessed, to be a blessing to all of the nations. And they didn't get to do that for hundreds of years at a time um, because they forsook the covenant, but never did they lose their identity in God. They were the sons of God. God loved them. They were God's children. They never lost their purpose, but they lost because what what their purpose was, by the way, was to reveal the glory of Yahweh because Abraham was just some rando dude worshiping the moon. He, God plucked him and said, you are of the nations. There were no nations that were Yahweh worshipers after Babel. All of the nations had you know, said, no, thank you to the God of the universe. So God plucked this dude and said, you are going to be how I demonstrate how I feel about the world. I'm going to turn you into a people. And then my relationship to Israel is going to be an object lesson to any nation about what I plan to do for everyone. Grab you while you're worshiping something else and fashion you into a son or a daughter of the most high. And then I'm going to love you faithfully. And if you happen to love me too, you get to be a part of the family business. And if you don't happen to love me too, I'm going to love you through my sons and daughters that do, that are a part of the family business. Because if you don't want to be Israel, you get to be one of the nations. But what is God's plan for the nations? And how does he do it? Israel is going to win them back to himself. Now, as New Testament believers, we understand that Israel did that when Israel was reduced to one man, Jesus. But Israel still did it. And it still had its reach to all of the nations. So if you don't, and then now guess what? He's going to pluck you from worshiping something else and make you a part of Israel. You get to be a part of the body of Christ. And then you get to have the role, rank, and responsibility of being ambassadors of God. Come be reconciled to God. If you don't want to be that, then you just get to be the nations that the, that the reconcilers go and win to God. But there's no person that, is, that loses their identity as a child of God. There's no person that loses their purpose 
as someone that want, that God wants to demonstrate his glory through. He became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. We might become God's way of proving himself just. Humanity is how God shows how God deals with sin, which you said in the beginning, Ben, like this whole conversation has to be cruciform. The whole thing has to be the God of the Old Testament died on a cross instead of punishing anybody he was mad at. Paul says in Romans 3.23 on the justice of God, this is how God demonstrated himself to be both just and the one who justifies that he died on a cross because he had overlooked all of the former sins, not punishing them until he took the punishment. It's fun modalism over here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. Jamie, that is, uh, I think that's a really good point. And um, I think that is the right way. If you're going to take scripture and let the whole story inform, you know, it's a basic interpretive cycle. Let the whole story inform every single story and let take every single story, let it fill in the whole story. And I think you do a really yep. good job of that. I think you're spot on. Not everybody and, does that, though. No. We, we, I don't, when did you go to seminary? Uh, I graduated in 2016. No, 2020. Sorry. I started 2016, 2016 and 2020. Yeah. While we were there, the profs were trying to figure out how to have a narrative emphasis on our theological education. They were trying to figure out how to help us use biblical theology to answer questions rather than systematic theology. Not everybody does this, understanding that a piece of the story is a fractal of the story at, at large, which means you can zoom out or zoom in if it's helpful. So when you have a story that you don't understand, zoom out. When the big story doesn't make any sense, pick a smaller story and look at it because that's the relationship of the part to the whole. The meta narrative of God has to has to make sense it has to like it, it, it so i don't mean that in a fit everything into a logical box but i just mean it is coherent the narrative is identical to the particular and so when paul says something like i made it my point to know nothing except for christ crucified among you what he was i mean what he was giving to us as a gift was if you want to collapse the whole meta narrative, if you want to collapse the whole identity of God into a single point, why not just use the cross and, and start there? But the truth is you can do that with any of the, you can do that with any of the, of the stories w to get back to very full circle and say, like, you have to make moves at some point. You have to make moves at some point because every now and again, you'll have a story that doesn't that you, you just can't seem to see the whole in this story. And then you go like, that's where moves matter. Right? So for instance, I'll, I'll tip my hand a little bit and I'll say at some point in the last 20 years of studying this intensely, like this, this is all that's ever mattered to me as, as an adult human being is God good is the only question that's ever kept me up at night. I, of all the things I could have done with my life, this is what I do not because I love everything about being an LCMS pastor, but because 
I get to play with this question all the time, right? The only thing that's given me peace was when I, was when I learned at some point that everybody picks a favorite parable through which to read what the kingdom of God is. Everybody has a favorite. And so it's okay to pick a favorite as long as you can justify it and it makes things make sense. All right. That's a What's that? Food manager. I don't hate it. <laughs> I don't hate it. But my favorite one, the one that I read all of the Bible through over and over again, I just figure out ways to cram stories through this lens. And then it makes sense is the parable of the prodigal son. The reason I do that is because as a Lutheran, I was told to privilege this idea that God, uh, we were, what was the language we were taught? God as father is a virtually literal analogy. We were taught that God basically is a father. He basically is a father, right? So to me, finding a parable where God was a dad was the best way to go in terms of a controlling paradigm for how to read the rest of the Bible. And the parable of the forgiving father is I cram everything through that and see if it makes any sense. That's what I do. Um, and I, I will tell you, I don't know. That, yeah. What do you, what do you mean by a virtually literal father? Because that sounds, I mean, that's getting into like the Mormon understanding. Oh of, yeah. Doesn't God, doesn't the father need a mother? Okay. <laughs> if this is going to bother you, I can't wait for you guys to figure out, uh, oh man, I love this. Um, so this was Lutheran mind. This was, um, who taught Lutheran mind for you? Who taught Okamoto. that class for you? Okamoto. Okay. So he, he maybe he didn't use this language. You had cold. Um, Pretty sure. so the question was, the question had to do with, um, why? So, uh, who's the guy? Oh, belts and Gibbs both use this language as well. But the question of why do we go with he for God when we know that the father isn't technically male, right? And the reason why is because father, this is the academic language that we were taught. It's because father is a virtually literal analogy. Since father is a virtually literal analogy for God, the first person of the Trinity we use masculine pronouns for him because he's told us to think of him as a father. Even though he's given us examples of him in scripture, analogies for the first person of the Trinity or the second person of the Trinity that give us more of a maternal sense, like I'm a a mother hen gathering you under my wings, like, like, right? But that one isn't a virtually literal analogy father is that's the academic language we were given but anyway the reason that i did that is i was trained as a lutheran with weird crap like that in my head right so i picked like i'm not gonna go some calvinists would go with god as king and so their favorite parable that they cram everything through would be one of the god as king ones what's i think interesting about that and i think telling about that is almost all of the parables where god is king God's not awesome, but all of the ones where he's a father, he is awesome. And which is another reason why I love being Lutheran. But the reason I'm saying this is cram stuff through your favorite parable and the story starts to make more sense. 
it starts to. I the more I do it with the parable of the forgiving father, the more I think Jesus had a favorite parable too, um, because it makes a lot of things make a lot of sense. Hmm. Boy, so my is... daughter just ran by with not enough clothes on. <laughs> <laughs> she did not make it anywhere in the camera. We're good. This is, this is an audio podcast only. We're fine. Uh, okay, so one thing, and I just want to say in response to that, is one theme throughout the scriptures that I think is an overarching theme from start to finish that, that ties in with all of this difficulty is the scandal of particularity. That whole thing of why some not others. For instance, why did God, God could, Clearly, he could pluck people who have absolutely, they are not seekers. They are just, you know, worshiping the moon. And then Abraham gets plucked out and set apart. When they were in Egypt, God was clearly having control, some interaction with Pharaoh's heart. Could he not have plucked Pharaoh's heart, changed them, almost have a little Constantine conversion? And Egypt has become turned to Yahweh. But he didn't do that. I mean, why doesn't he do it? When he maybe could, uh, thinking of parables where some are saved and some are not, you know, it could almost take your your whole parable thing. And I, I think as far as just something that is maybe uh, something that's difficult or causes some consternation, and it's throughout scripture, before Jesus, after Jesus, or I say, yeah, before Jesus, after Jesus, um, that's something throughout that I think it is the problem for a lot of people, but it is also a prominent thing from start to finish. I mean, I don't know if you have a, I'm just kind of saying that, but I don't know if you agree or disagree, or if you think that's at the heart of this. That what's from the start to finish, exactly. The scandal of particularity. Oh, I mean, yes, in the sense of God's choosing, right? That that it's always got, so in terms of the way that I like to, I have to think of things very simply or else I don't understand them. Um, but the way in which I, I do, it's true. I mean, I'm just saying uh, the way that I, what I, I see in terms of arrows of God arrow down choosing individuals, the, the entire narrative meta narrative of scripture is God towards you like that. That's it. And it gets more specific as it goes down, but it's always, uh, closer it's it's to the point of with in the in the in, in the incarnation that god with us and then it's that is literally the the heavens coming here too that it's we're not it's not a it's not an arrow up situation like it is it is god towards uh towards us and yes that god's choosing i mean that, that was god choosing abraham that was god's choosing uh different specific people to work through the prophets that was god choosing Jesus going and choosing the disciples, right? I mean, like quite literally, uh, even when God shows up in flesh, he still does what he did before he's choosing. It wasn't like in terms of rabbis back in the day, people would go and want to follow the rabbi Jesus. Hey, you're going to follow me. Right. And, and so God's choosing. Yes. God continually, uh, chooses now the, yeah, and, and that is, that's also what that's what scripture says about us too. It's not that, you know, that we're chosen in Christ. Yeah, we are. Yeah. That we are uh, the uh, chosen priesthood, you know, we're a royal uh, nation, people belonging to God. And it's not, has, has nothing to do with our, uh, yeah, nothing to do with our goodness, nothing else. And, and this is where that is difficult, right? Yeah. That, that's a hard thing. Well, why does God, the, the whole cure Ali alias, right? The whole crux theologian, the crux of the theologian, why are some saved and not others? And that's, not necessarily something that uh 
that I can answer. I mean, I, I really, I really can't. I, but I, I can rest in the mercy of God. I can point John, to John the gospel. How does God want to be known? The answer. Yeah. What's that? John the gospel author tells us the answer to that question, which I'm mad that uh, we didn't hear that at seminary. Um, but John the gospel author tells us the answer to that question in the first chapter. Yeah, like he just. What way? In what way? Enlighten us, Jay. I'm ready. I'm ready. Tell me. <laughs> Have you read? Okay. Um, yes, I've read <laughs> the book of John. Thank you very much. <laughs> I was just checking. <laughs> oh man. Um, he says this is the this is the judgment. Some people prefer darkness. And especially in John, it's important to know that every single time Jesus makes a public address, he'll stand up and say, let, he doesn't say, let, let everyone who is blonde hair and blue eyed come to me and drink. And the, the spirit of God will become a living fountain bubbling out of them. Right. He says, let any of you, if, if the scandal of particularity is the difference between any and every fine, we can talk about that. But you can't say that God is too particular when his, what seems to be his language over and over again is any and all. It's not often every, that's true. But John tells us Jesus came to condemn no one, but to save everybody. But people who won't trust in him are condemned. Here is the verdict. They didn't want what Jesus had to offer. They didn't want it. So he said, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. And they said, how dare you suggest that I'm parched in any way? You blasphemer. I'm filled with an invisible, unseeable, you know, all quenching water by virtue of my DNA as an Abrahamian. Like, how dare you suggest that I would be thirsty? And he goes, you've got to be a little bit thirsty. And he said, I would, I will, I will kill you before I admit that I am thirsty at all. So, okay, fine. Well, anybody who uh, can't see clearly can come to me and receive their sight. And they said, are you calling me blind? He goes, no, fine. Um, if you're spiritually dead, my words will raise you to new and everlasting life. They say, how dare you call me? As I mean, John, over and over and over again, Jesus can't be any more invitational and any more clear that he's here for every single person. And the only people that don't get what he has to offer are the people that look at him and say, I don't want it, or at least I don't want it from you. Are you here in the ABCs? Oh yeah. Okay, so Jamie, I hear you. I hear okay, you referencing sorry. something inspired, and let me raise you something that's not only inspired, but something that I subscribe to unconditionally, and that is Luther's explanation to the third article. Okay, <laughs> I believe that I cannot, by my own reason or strength. So we would love the darkness yes. if God did not change our hearts. And again, I think we have some reason, but I think it's one of those things where we have that much. And then, but then the rest, we can't ever quite get the way. And scripture only goes about that far. And we're left right here. And we want so badly to make sense of why some, not others. But I think, you know, we're given, okay, yeah, people love darkness and God is merciful and all these things kind of hang together. 
And we're not quite sure where they connect, how they connect. We're just kind of left, right, right there. And I think, I, I mean, I say all that because I think for all this conversation, there is a sense of when you kind of just have to be okay and accept, even if, okay, maybe you're not even okay with that, but you have to accept that whole scandal of particularity, that it, that, that it is a factor. And yes, maybe it's justified. Maybe you, you can see sort of why and the logic behind it. But I think recognize it is difficult, but then ultimately you, I, you just kind of have to embrace the reality of it, I think. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I, so to answer our overall question, is Jesus nicer than his dad? <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, because well, I that's, think we, I, I think we're we, we've about talked that. about it from every <laughs> angle, maybe not every, actually, that's not true. We could talk about this for probably a year and people do. I mean, this but we've talked about it from a lot of different angles and approached it. Hopefully, I mean, kind of like you said, even before we got on, Jamie, rather than offering answers, but offering a posture of humility and entering into this conversation with prayer, because it is a real spiritual issue that people have with, man, I'm struggling or uh, I see Jesus loves, but I don't feel love from God. Uh, and and or I have people in my life that have not <laughs> have not been plucked so to speak that they're not their hearts have not been changed and i have parts of my own heart that have not been changed i don't i don't i don't uh i don't live uh a completely transformed life i have to ignore those i don't like to admit that part right but so yeah i i think i think the overall answer to the question that we would probably say is yeah, of course, they're the same person. And yeah, their niceness or their goodness is you, you cannot have one without the other. And it, to separate them, well, it would be uh, one blasphemy, not cool on either side. Uh, but we have to hold that tension that is, uh, that is the reality that we see both in the Old Testament and also in our own lives. Um, and so being able to do that well and faithfully and prayerfully, um, I really think that... Uh, it's, it's, I mean, it's not, there's not going to be a silver bullet answer that's going to make it all kind of hold together, uh, except for the only silver bullet answer that God wants to give us really is, hey, take a look at my cross. I mean, that, that's it. Like, that's the entire thing is if you can yeah. see my love and my wrath here, <laughs> oh, check it out. Go here. This is my love. This yeah. is my wrath. Yeah. This is, this is, and this is for you. And this is for the whole world. Yeah. And I, I am, you know, like you quoted the, the, the Bible verse earlier that, in him, he knew no sin, but he became, I mean, he became sin, right? He, and he, he, the, the most, the most sinful person he became to ever exist. thing that is wrong with us. Like, right. That's what's so weird, but yeah. 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 He, yeah. I mean, we, yeah. he had no sin, but yet he was the most sinful person in the entire world because he bore the sins of the, of the entire world. So, um, and yet we, yeah. And, and so when we look at the goodness of God or, or the justice of God or the love of God, we have to funnel it through the way in which he wants us to know him and specifically in Christ, right? There are pl plenty of things about God, the father, um, and, uh, in the ways in which he works and the ways in which we don't understand that we could try to peer inside of. And honestly, I, I mean, I love trying to have those conversations, honestly. And I think that's, that's a, that's a theological thing to do. However, what God wants for you, what God wants for us is to Hey, I know that I'm distant. No one has ever seen God, but this, but this is now me. Like this is, it's not new. This is who I've always been. But in the fullness of time, I have revealed my 
essence to you that this is this is who I am. And so we yeah. And so when people pit the two against each other, it's not it, it, the scripture doesn't leave room for that. Um, and so they are one in the same. Um, and, uh, without, you know, without some sort of heretical statement, they are yet different, you know, but <laughs> distinct. whatever, yeah, whatever uh, but you're supposed to say, whatever you want to say, but that was the whole point. Jesus literally died because he was claiming to be, he was blaspheming. He was taking away honor from people because he was claiming to be God and claiming to, uh, lift up a different paradigm understanding of what does it mean to be monotheist? What does it mean to be that we have one God? This guy, again, so he was killed for those reasons. So uh, I don't know. We could probably we could probably kind of talk about this for, well, we've already been talking for quite some time, and we could talk about it for longer. Yeah, um, like an hour. We got to get started a little bit late, but yeah, an hour, hour 15. But I think you're right. It's for, I think ultimately where I point people is you're, you can't, it's hard to kind of start with your own questions and with your own presuppositions and try to work your way to Jesus. You almost have to say, okay, t- start with Jesus take what he's done and then see how he uh, eventually kind of addresses your questions. And I think there's, that's a fundamentally different approach, but I think it is the invitation that we have with scripture. And like Paul's, I strove to know nothing but Christ and crucified, like start with Jesus, start with the fact that he's died. The fact that yes, love and wrath actually can be right at the same place, same time perfection and sinfulness can be at the same place, same time. Start with those kind of things. What are the truths that, Jesus brings in, how does that span out to all these difficult things? I think that difference in approach can make all the difference. Yeah, I mean, where, where else really are you going to start? Because I mean, you could start with here, but you don't move anywhere. I mean, yeah. like in any of other places, if you can start with, uh, <laughs> um, I mean, with, with any other religions even too, right? It's okay, uh, let's start with this problem, this problem of suffering, this problem of pain, this problem of whatever it is. You'd start with a problem, but it's always a move upward, Again, trying to make this arrow go upward, and we always, no matter what, fall short in any sort of thing. And Christianity can do this too, right? Be like, hey, you got to be really, 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 really good, and that's when God's grace. But so the, the, where we have to start is, oh, God's already right here, right? God is right here for me, um, and yeah. His goodness is for me, even if even if I don't maybe define uh, what is good. I mean, was it good for John the Baptist to have his head cut off? Uh, was it good for all the disciples to lay down their lives? Uh, yeah, it was because it was life was not the, the things that we value in life are not bad, but they're not they're not also the things that are most important in life. Um, and right. so the author of life gets to gets to determine and frees us, frees us from the responsibility and trying to figure it out on our own. He said he frees us to right. say, this is what life is. I've come that you may have life and life to the full that you don't have to. You don't have to figure it out on your own because that's not, you're not made to do that. You're not, you cannot carry that weight, uh, both of your own sin and your own purpose and your own. And who am I going to be? It's God says, I've taken this from you and I'm giving this to you. Right. Uh, yeah. so that's the, that's the, that's the burden and the rest, right? That's the, that's the right. yoke and the rest. Right. And we don't accept, um, we don't take from God our identity and purpose. We accept from God our role and rank and responsibility, our job to do in the kingdom, but we don't accept or reject our identity. You can't, um, you can't choose to not be loved by God. You can't choose to not be something he made. You can't decide 
to not be the way in which he will reveal his purpose and glory, you don't get to opt out of your identity and purpose. You can't. But you can forsake your role in creation. You can forsake your rank in creation. You can forsake your responsibility in creation. You can do that. And when you do that, God will just bring someone else into the role and do it to you what he was intending to do through you. And that's the story that you see over and over and over again with these particular people that God selects is it's always all through because how do you get to everybody except through somebody? How do you get to everyone except through someone? Right. Um, But here I want to, I want to touch on the first Corinthians thing again and just say, um, I think that that's a really helpful diagnostic for us to keep using as a way to tell us when it's time to think more about a story, because Hmm. even just the God does not delight in evil. If a thing is evil, God didn't want it to happen. He didn't want it to happen, which is enough. If we're honest about the world that we live in, it's enough to prevent anybody from being Calvinist which is like slowly becoming my, my secret mission in the world. (laughs) It's no, but, but the idea, because here's, here's where I think people, um, if we're being fair, most people that are deconstructing are deconstructing from some weird version of Calvinism. And, but they're butting up against this idea of God who has willed and caused everything. And their question is, why would he do some of this? Some of it I get, but some of it I really don't. And the idea that God didn't will or cause some things is okay. There's room for that in a place called Lutheran theology. There's room for the idea that God didn't actually want Genesis 3 to happen. He didn't want that. That's okay. The father in the parable of the prodigal son didn't want his son to leave. And take everything that he he wanted him to stay. That's okay to admit. I mean, we're not sinning by admitting that the father had his heart broken when his son left and then was overjoyed when his son returned. That's okay to think that, right? We have to remember that God chooses to only ever always bear crosses and never build them. God is not a cross builder. He's a cross bearer. In Jesus, we see that that's who he is. And then we learn to understand that's who he's always been. And we trust that that's who he will always be. Because the two biggest problems we have in the Christian world today is, is future Jesus as nice as current Jesus? That should be pod number two. That's the the judgment, man. That's it. That's an interesting yeah, question. Yeah. Can we expect to say Jesus for the New yeah. Testament to be the one on Judgment Day? Man. Yeah. All right. Well, we should probably wrap this yeah. conversation up, and we should have you back for that one. And also, I want to have you back for uh, talking about Genesis 6 and the Nephilim sometime. Yes. Oh, my <laughs> goodness. <laughs> have, oh, boy. That's going to be fantastic. And if, uh, I guess, any any final thoughts, if anybody has actually made it to the end of this, um, any final thoughts that we want to kind of, uh, I guess, kind of land on? Uh, Jamie, I'll give you the last word. Jesus really does love you. And the Bible really does tell you that. This I know, or the Bible tells me so. 
Okay, good. Nice. Awesome. Well, thanks for wondering with us, guys, uh, friends, gals, whoever is made it this way, mom, this far. Awesome. Thank you. Um, <laughs> and uh, if you have any questions, any other things you'd like us to talk about, let us know. We'll, uh, we'll see you next time.